0: We are speaking with Andreas Beaumont, who is the founder of Democracy Without Borders and behind the international campaign for a UN Parliamentary Assembly. We'll be talking about his uh, ideas on UN reform and world government, as well as his, his, uh, his book that was published recently, A World Parliament, Governance and Democracy in the 21st Century. Thanks for coming on the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, Andreas. Thanks so much for having me, Rokhia. Now this is the first time uh, that I broach this this topic on geopolitics and empire. Uh, it's an interesting topic. Uh, I don't think people talk much uh, about it, but you know it's this idea of world government that goes back for many thousands of years and millennia, as you write in your book. Uh, and one of the examples that you talk about is uh, the Chinese dynasties. That you know, 3,000 years ago, they had this idea of Tianxia. Uh, which means everything under heaven uh, and that the idea that the Chinese emperor unites and rules the world as the son of heaven and there are many other uh, iterations uh, going back to the Greeks uh, And so on, but it seems that only in recent centuries the realization of a world state has become closer to reality and that today in our present age um, some might say the very first time in history that a true world parliament is possible thanks to technology, globalization, uh, integration, uh, as well as um, the possibilities of uh, extinction, and which you talk about in, in, in your book. And you know, so, some of the names you mentioned, some of the proponents surprised me. They included Henry Ford, uh, Albert Camus, Friedrich von Hayek, Albert Einstein, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the Catholic Church since 1951. So, Can you tell us a little bit about why is today different than any previous moment in history?
1: Well, um, thanks again for having me today um, and for pointing out the long history and tradition of the idea of a democratic uh, world parliament. In fact, um, I think it is noteworthy. The people you mentioned, they actually cover the whole political spectrum, with the exception, perhaps, of obviously the nationalistic far right. And um, the idea has been around for such a long time, um, based on an understanding, and you refer to it, uh, that um, all humankind is one family. And we can find that actually in all cultures across the world regions, including in Africa. Um, Ubuntu concept, you know, um, is um, relevant in this regard. And... um, why is it most relevant today? I mean, obviously, that's because global interdependence um, has come to a degree, uh, to a level worldwide that is actually putting humanity at risk. Um, And actually, it also means that whatever action you take as an individual or as a group somewhere on the globe potentially affects everybody else on the planet. And um, this concerns, obviously, first of all, the question of or the problem rather of climate change you know carbon dioxide knows no um, borders it just freezes slowly in the atmosphere um, so there are many global common goods of this kind that actually affect everybody and w- on which we have an impact as individuals as nations and other groups so this makes it a um, urgent necessity actually for us as um, humankind to rethink the ways we govern this world And um, so we have this one um, starting point, which is, I would say, philosophy or um, empathy uh, for your fellow human being. But the other thing is this actual uh, obvious necessity that um, global governance, um, that's the bottom line, has been failing with the system we have um, today.
0: And, you know, the topic of world parliament or world government is something that I think is not on the mind of the average citizen uh, around the world. You talk to most people. Well, I think a lot of people, they, they won't know what you're talking about. And the concept has a variety of names. Sometimes I get confused. I don't even know what to call it. Uh, you know, you call it world parliament. There's global governance, global government, world state, uh, so on. You know, what what should we call it if we talk about definitions? And could you describe this concept? Uh, for us, uh, is there a singular version, or can it come in many different uh, acceptable variations
1: well, this is i mean first of all, uh, and from my perspective, amazing actually that the idea that we need to make a leap forward in how the world is governed is not mainstream or at least it 's not yet mainstream. Um, look at the climate protest strike movement and and others who are dealing with global problems, including nuclear disarmament or global pandemics and all, it's its actually very amazing um, to me that uh, this topic is actually not coming up. Um, but just one, one short um, remark on the history, because this has not been like this um, all the time. Um, immediately after the Second World War or during the First and the Second World War, there was a broad popular movement for world government. And I think at the time, it's also laid out in the book, at the time, I mean, it was popular because people individually themselves they just felt the impact of war, of um, full-scale war and mass murder. So um, they were rethinking whether nationalism, which was the root problem, is really is really um, what should lead that in the future. And they concluded that's not the case. So if we talk about terms, this is very important because um, terms, um, I think. Um, they actually describe what you are talking about. And um, global governance and global government, to start with this, that are, I would say, two completely different things. Governance refers to some multi level, informal um, structure involving different kinds of stakeholders and actors. It's very fluid and intransparent. That's what governance is about. And global governance um, does not actually question the um, setup of our, you know, today's international law and the international system, which is based on national sovereignty, in principle, and um, governing the world with 193 um, nominally sovereign entities is just the problem. It doesn't work. So that's governance. And of course, I'm very brief now, there are, you know, meters and meters of literature about what that is, global governance, or what it is not. But in, in my view, it is really different from government, which then describes, by contrast, a formalized way how decisions are being taken. Partly it's also hierarchical, you know. So um, this refers then to principles in government like federalism or subsidiarity that come into play that do not necessarily play a role in governance um, approaches. So um, you have a clear structure in government who does what and who has what responsibility and who is taking what decisions with what legitimacy. So, um, of course, there are many more terms. Perhaps you you can point out which ones are now of most interest to you in in this interview. Um, Others refer to, of course, the world parliament. And here we have often, I think, synonymous um, terms like, I mean, a global parliament and the world parliament is essentially the same. Or if you speak about a world federation, uh, from my point of view, a federation um, automatically implies that you have a democratic system. So, um, yeah, but it's important to be clear about what we are talking about.
0: And, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, of transforming the UN into a uh, world government, as your book uh, says, and is this reform of the UN possible uh, and, or even desirable, or would it be better to establish an entirely new world uh, federal organization?
1: Right, I mean the UN. Um, its basic structures were born out, um, obviously, out of the you know situation at and at the end of the Second World War with the five veto powers and the permanent members. At the same time, um, it was also decided at the time to take a functional approach, meaning that if some issue came up, a new organization was established. So, um, to be more precise, we could be talking about the UN system, which is composed of like 40 or more programs, um, um, specialized agencies and so on. So um, it's a larger system. But if we talk about the core organization really, um, I believe that moving forward to a system of global government, right, um, we should really consider using what already exists. And so I would argue that the core organization of the UN which is pretty small actually, but still it exists and it actually already represents the embryonic starting point of the world executive. So I don't think that um, parallel structures and duplication um, is really the way forward. And um, besides, I mean, the the reality is, even if we were able to establish a new organization in parallel, um, I mean, this new organization, in my opinion, would. deal with the same problems. You know, we are dealing with problems of you know, a geopolitical nature, the competition of nation states um, that is ingrained in, in our international law system of today. So even if we had the opportunity to create a new world community of sorts, um, those problems wouldn't go away. Unless it uh, would really be a leap forward, like I, you know, like we are um, trying to um, portray it in in the book, a leap forward to a democratic world system. But if such a system is effectively to address global issues, um, it um, should be universal, right? So there are proposals um, out there um, that have become a little bit more prominent uh, more recently like a community of democracies and sort of um, Organizations of that kind, but okay. I mean how would a community just as an as a scenario of 40 or 50 countries be able to address um, for instance a problem of potential uh, global pandemics yes, so actually the that we have you know weak links uh, en masse, and and that's something we need to avoid.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about, well, the concert of democracies and something called the Democracies 10. Um, So, just to clarify, there are no proposals for an entirely new world federation. All of them are looking to, I guess, uh, work together with the UN system?
1: Well, I mean... There are many, many, many initiatives and um, proposals in academia and elsewhere um, on world order questions. So um, certainly there are also proposals to you know, move forward in parallel or alternatively to the UN, to the existing UN. Um, however, the question remains how to deal with, with the existing world organization that we have. Um, so this is something that is largely unaddressed in all those models. So there are, those are blueprints um, that are not really, in my opinion, rooted in, in the reality we live in. Um, but um, of course, uh, such models do exist.
0: Something um, interesting for me are, you know, the numerous regional unions or regional integrations uh, that exist, starting with the the EU. We have the African Union, the South American Union, UNASUR, or you have MERCOSUR. Uh, and interestingly, the Colombian president, Ivan Duque, recently proposed PROSUR. Uh, so there's a lot of fun there. There's a lot of competition. We have ASEAN, the Southeast Asian Union, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, which I'm, I'm guessing is going along those same lines, looking forward to a uh, Eurasian Union. They've been, they've been discussing a common uh, currency in, in these parts here where I am. Uh, I've read about a proposed Middle Eastern Union, and, and so forth. And in your book, I didn't know um, until uh, I, I read it, you mentioned that the BRICS are discussing a common uh, parliament as well. So what role would these kind of regional interparliamentary institutions have within a world parliament?
1: Right, um, this is a topic that is often being overlooked, not only by mainstream, but even in academia, that we do have those regional integration processes. And of those processes, they actually, by now, almost all of them include parliamentary bodies. And um, just to, to to stress that again, uh, one of my main jobs, actually, day-to-day jobs, is to coordinate the international campaign for a UN parliamentary assembly, uh, which would be just the first step towards a democratic world parliament. So we need to look at it from, uh, you know, the view that it is a process that will start uh, with the first step and then develop over time. The uh, democratically elected world parliament is, is the vision that you pursue. And certainly we want to achieve as much as possible, as quickly as possible, but realistically there will be a first pragmatic step um, because obstacles are very, very large and then this institution will grow. And now back to your question about the regional integration uh, approaches and organizations. Um, Here is exactly, you know, uh, a spot where we can find models and examples how such um, parliamentary bodies have been working elsewhere. Um, there is no such thing in the UN system or globally at all. There is no global body um, of parliamentarians, for for instance, for the World Trade Organization or the International Monetary Fund, or where, anywhere in the UN system. And, and this is amazing, but at the regional level, there are many. Um, the Pan-African Parliament, for instance, um, represents the African citizens in addition Uh, to the governments uh, in the African Union. Uh, We have the uh, um, Paralatino, which is a parliamentary body for Latin America. Um, Of course, um, we should also mention the European Parliament, which is the most developed of these institutions, which is actually a real powerhouse by now, and the European elections are just in a week or so. Um, And and this is actually, you know, the European Parliament more important than any national parliament. This is something that many even in Europe don't realize, right, that by now, over a decades-long development, the European Parliament is not setting really the agenda on many, many topics in Europe well. And now the point is, um, if we imagine how a UN Parliamentary Assembly or world parliament can function. Um, we can be informed by looking at those examples, right? And in a larger picture of global integration, um, because I believe um, a parliamentary body of this kind will be or should be an engine for global integration based on common values um, in a democratic way. Um, so those parliamentary bodies in the continental um, regional um, associations are engines of regional integration as well, like in the Pan-African Parliament. Um, they would discuss, uh, for instance, the upcoming African free trade area, which will be launched in seven days Also, um, or, or other things. And, and those are people, you know, they, they are not the executive. They are uh, free to, to speak um, their minds in principle. So this is important. And in Europe, that has been important, too. And this is exactly what's missing globally, right? At the global scale, at the UN scale, it's really all intergovernmental. And foreign ministries across the world, wherever you go, um, the diplomats, the career diplomats, they are hesitant to accept the fact that in our time, it is no longer sufficient that a whole country is represented by a single diplomat, right? Because today the um distinction between foreign policy and domestic policy is blurred, right? We have one world domestic policy issues that affect everybody. So um a larger spectrum um, needs to be represented in intergovernmental negotiations and we can see how this plays out regionally.
0: And can you just give us a just kind of a visualization? Because this is all kind of it, it, it's 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 quite confusing. But I mean what it looked like at, in the onion, if we had a world parliament where we still have like our national parliament or, or, or government uh, existing simultaneously with the, the regional uh, union or parliament, and then finally with the world parliament, would it kind of look like that? Would they all, all three systems be? necessary?
1: Yes. Sure, sure. I think that what we are talking about eventually is a system of multi level government. So there are levels of government already. They start at the local scale, at the re- then let's go to the subnational, regional scale between the provinces in uh, feder- federated countries, and then you get to the nation-state level. In some continents, you got the sub-regional level. Then you know, like the East African Community um, or the um, South Asian um, Association of Regional Cooperation or ASEAN, and so on, and above that. Um, at some point you would reach the global scale. So we have local, national, continental, um, global, and the um, approach that we suggest is to say we we accept that those levels exist. All of these levels are important in solving specific issues, Um, and we would apply the principle of subsidiarity to identify what issues would have to be dealt with at what level of government, right? So, And and at the lowest level possible, which means, to a degree, decentralization. If we are dealing with issues um, that are better dealt with at um, lower levels, then they should be um, moved there. But one thing that is often overlooked is that at the same time, subsidiarity in this case also means that some issues would have to be pushed up to, to higher levels of government. Let's say climate change, for instance. This is, um, you know, policy on climate change mitigation is a genuinely global matter. So this would have to be pushed up to the scale of global government, right? Um, it depends, of course, the devil is always in the details, but in principle, I think that's the level where it should be. Um, but we have no level of global government, and and that's exactly the, the governance uh, crisis and gap I guess uh, that we are dealing with today. So, I mean, to make your to make my response very short, we are talking about um, federalism, you know, and federalism means you got those you have those multi-level, um, you know, those m- levels of multi-government, um, and and that's um, I guess actually quite simple.
0: I wanted to ask just kind of a fun question on Brexit because it's being talked about all the time every day. Um, yes. Something interesting, I think it was about a 70, 80, 90 years ago, there had previously existed this idea for an Atlantic uh, Union, I think, uniting the English speaking nations such as Canada, USA, and Britain. If Brexit succeeds, you think Britain in theory, could join the U.S. someday as part of, you know, USA and Canada as part of some kind of uh, economic and political union. I mean, what would happen with uh, Britain?
1: I think Britain will be alone and on its own for a very long time. Um, Of course, it's possible to imagine such scenarios but I don't think that this is um, going to happen. (laughs) Like, um, the question also, you know, needs to be solved. What actually will happen with the UK? I mean, who says that the UK as such will even exist in 10 or 20 years' time? I mean, Scotland for certain and Wales, they don't necessarily see their future as part of this so-called Global Britain entity. So this is something that um, plays a role here. And um, it's interesting that you are referring to this history because, in fact, it's more than 100 years old, the idea that a world government or a world federation might be based first on a unification of all English-speaking people across the world. Um, so this is interesting. But I don't think that um, it's a realistic scenario to imagine a transatlantic community around Canada, U.S., and Britain. I mean, f- I guess that uh, a strong relationship with the remaining european union will be a priority for you know in the transatlantic relationship Um, especially if the united kingdom um will dissolve too Mm -hmm. you know so what will remain that's little england
0: (laughs) um i had a couple of questions on geopolitics uh so if if we did uh, achieve a world parliament or a glo- uh, global government? Uh, you know, would there be any geopolitical contests or power struggle dynamics between the U.S. and and China and, and Russia? What would happen uh, in that regard within a, a world federation? Would that be even possible?
1: Right, I, I think. We need to understand that um, if we talk about the concept of a world federation, we are really speaking about a very, very different um, scenario like we have it today. Um, Pillars of a world legal order that would be relevant in a world federation include universally binding legislation, which is what we are working on, the establishment of a world parliament, um, which would do that. Um, It would also involve worldwide arms control, including nuclear disarmament. Um, It would, in that regard, also um, include the establishment of a police force. It would also mean that um, disputes would be settled in court, right, and uh, not necessarily by um, subversive political and other means. And it also means, um, if we imagine a World Federation, that there would be means of law enforcement um, through the criminal court that has universal jurisdiction, you know, a um, sort of international criminal court that is better developed than what we have today. And then um, the police. So I would argue that if we imagine a World Federation, of course, Political struggles, especially about redistribution of and, and distribution of resources, will continue. Um, struggles about markets will continue. Um, political divisions will continue. The, but the way how those um, conflicts would be dealt with would be completely different, because the um, risk and the underlying um, threat. Um, of violence, conflict, and war, that would no longer exist, right? So we would have dispute settlement mechanisms that are obligatory, and um, we would deal with a situation where we have massive disarmament, um, ideally um, national armies that are ready to wage full-scale war um, and mass murder wouldn't even exist anymore. So. I would then compare it with a scenario like for instance in the United States of America how different uh, states pursue different interests internally you know but um, Texas does not uh, you know threaten California with violence and and there's no inherent threat of any such thing ever to happen so and and that's exactly I think what this is about um, that we would move into a world order in which Um, We use civilized ways of dealing with each other and our differences, things that we accept and take for granted at the domestic level and which today, I mean, are not yet implemented at the global scale because it's basically still anarchic.
0: I guess in some ways geopolitics would become irrelevant. Um.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And hopefully so. That's right.
0: And so, some of the tougher questions, I guess, regarding uh, global government, you respond to some of the criticism uh, in your book. And I guess, the, you know, the big question, the central problem, is the global Leviathan, which you talk about. A, you know, if if we had a system like this, a, a, the the fear that it might become a totalitarian, tyrannical global state. You know, what is the fail safe mechanism that would prevent a world parliament from you know becoming a global leviathan
1: right i mean this has been one of the arguments since kant you know immanuel kant and in philosophy that a world state is a risk because it might deteriorate into a global leviathan a suppressive regime and i mean there are a couple of ways to deal with this and in today's situation i first would like to point out or raise the question perhaps Aren't we already in a totalitarian world state? It's just not, perhaps, tangible as such. Isn't it already a system of global structural violence um, that we already have, but you cannot easily pinpoint the power centers and the processes that are going on? Isn't the system already serving a specific transnational elite, right? So this is, I think, one question. that one needs to raise. So if we now talk about a a formal, um, you know, world government that might deteriorate, I would say, besides of the first argument, that there is, unfortunately, I believe, no fail-safe system at all. However, um, perhaps the key is um, to understand that we are not talking about a centralized world state. But what we are talking about, um, as we touched on earlier um, in this interview, we are talking about a system of multi level government, which means we have subsidiarity and federalism in this system. So let's say, um, or let's take the example of policing and, and law enforcement. There certainly would not be one global law enforcement agency. But um, as you have it in other um, federal states, you would have um, multiple agencies and um, police entities at different levels. Like in the United States, you've got the National Guard at the state level, you have got the county police, the sheriffs, you got uh, then at the federal level, you have got your certain agencies. So um, there would not be a centralized executive of this kind. And um, the world executive uh, to a large degree would rely on implementation of global regulation and decisions through lower-scale entities. You know, So um, just to, to follow that example further, there would not be one major centralized global army, but decentralized forces. Are in tax governance also, um, we would have taxes that apply globally through a global tax system, for instance, perhaps on um, carbon emissions um, or other globe genuinely global activities that affect everybody, this is a tax um, that would be decided on and implemented globally. However, perhaps regional or national tax organizations and services would have to actually Um, take care that it's being collected and implemented, right? So even here, it's not, there is not necessarily um, the need to create one centralized large um, world um, agency dealing with taxation, but one perhaps that is coordinating and that it's taking care that global rules are being implemented uniformly across the planet. So I believe this is one element to understand that it's a multi-level government system, and the other, then finally, of course, is that um, one would have to, in addition to this, one would have to um, establish a very intelligent um, and resilient um, system of checks and balances, right? Because um, of course we have different um, um, branches of government that would be at play here, um, so we would have the executive, um, but um we would have the legislative branch that you refer to the world parliament and we would have a judicative branch meaning that decisions being taken at, at you know by other branches they would be um subject to legal review um citizens would have to have um, and other entities would have to have um you know the option to question and um, challenge certain global regulation in court um, not necessarily only global cards, but starting at the local level and then going up um, and so on. So um, the devil is in the detail, but I think um, you know those principles um, will be very helpful moving forward with this idea.
0: You mentioned the transnational uh, elite, and there's two things you mentioned in the book, the revolution from above and the revolution uh, from below, which we'll talk about in a second. But first, the revolution from above, you talk about this transnational Elite, uh, the super class, the power money complex, uh, you've mentioned as well the Bilderberg Group and the Trilateral Commission. You say that this group doesn't want a world government because they prefer the current arrangement uh, because they can kind of float around the world and uh, enjoy no rule of law. I mean, for them, there's no legal jurisdiction to which they must uh, answer, there's no global power center. Um, but you say that these current transnational elites need to get behind uh, the uh, the idea of world government and see the logic uh, in it because they will be kind of like um, a, a key to get get behind this. And so, I mean, what can you say uh, about them? And, and then as well, would there be a way, because um, they have a power that influences national governments today. And so can you talk about the revolution from above, as well as, you know, would it be possible for them to kind of influence the supranational structures uh, of the world parliament?
1: Right. Um, this is very important. Um, first, I would like to say that certainly the transnational elite is not necessarily a uniform group. Um, in the book, we define it. I mean, we offer uh, many definitions put forward by others. Um, but I think the in the very core, um, the main um indicator whether you belong to the transnational elite or not is um what assets you control directly or indirectly um, financial assets so um eventually we are not necessarily talking about a large group of people but there are they, you know there are concentric circles around them people that depend on them um in academia and politics of course uh, in uh, you know multinational corporations anyway and um, this is a group that you are talking about. So let's uh, use the example of tax evasion and um, analyze why would this elite um, tend to say we don't need and and we don't want a you know global regulation on this because if if we have 193 entities doing their own you know tax systems and. Um, of course, they can play um, all of them against each other, and and that's exactly what's happening, right? So um, it is, you know, they can maneuver much better in in a system of 193 sovereign states um, compared to a system of world law that applies to them all at the same time and makes them subject to the rule of law, like you indicated. So this is just a, a starting point, and um, however. The, this current situation is absolutely not sustainable um in many respects. I mean, parts of the transnational elite, in fact, they are building their bunkers uh, literally you know below the earth. they are luxury bunkers because they they believe that um, calamity is coming, and um certainly that's that's quite right. if we look at the um, climate um, situation um, you know, a world of two, three, four, or five degrees Celsius more than today will be a very, very, um, you know, unlivable place to live in. And they are preparing for this. But it also um, grows the pressure um, to achieve real change that is um, serving the interests of the world community and world citizens at large. And I think that, you know, instances like the Occupy movement, And others, they show that something is brewing there. You know, there is discontent about the so called uh, 0.01%, and rightfully so. So I would argue if the situation is not sustainable, the pressure will grow, you know what I refer to at the very beginning of our interview, global governance is failing, and you can see it in many, many areas, like inequality, too. It's, it's um, you know, skyrocketing, and, um, you know, the difference between elite um, salaries and the salaries of normal workers is also, you know, the gap is skyrocketing and, and so on. You can find many um, examples for this. So um, I would argue that at least um, some... Members of a transnational elite who are enlightened and who understand that eventually we are in the same boat. This is, you know, our so called um, um, spaceship Earth. We are in the same boat and we simply, you know, even them, they simply will have to embrace the idea of a system change if they want to avert a global revolution. I mean, I don't want to over, you know, exaggerate, but even a global breakdown of civilization. And today, this group of people, they are those who are mainly responsible. Um, Let's let's not, uh, you know, um, shy away from that fact.
0: Uh, and just to comment uh, on the revolution from below, I mean, we've seen the Occupy, right. it seems like this crescendo that just keeps building the Occupy Wall Street, um, I think 2007, seven, eight, and then 2011, the Arab Spring. And now we're seeing something, I think, even even bigger, the, the scale, the, the yellow vests uh, in, in France, which are spreading to other countries in, in, in Europe. So, I mean, will this just kind of keep getting bigger?
1: Yes, I mean, this is speculation, of course, um, and we don't know the future, but um, for sure, I think it's obvious that the pressure on people in many instances is growing. Um, in developed countries, the middle classes are crushed, and um, certainly those who feel economically or culturally, socially insecure, they will try to find ways to um, to express their dissatisfaction. And the Yellow Wests are one example in France, but we have them, I believe, everywhere. And um, there are waves, right? The Occupy Wall Street wave is over, Um, but um, the next wave may come quite quickly, uh, more um, quickly than we um, anticipate today. And this is certainly related to geopolitical or, um, let's say other global developments. Um, I mean, experts are saying that they really think the root causes of the global financial crisis in 2007 and 2008 have not been addressed at all, and that the next um, big, um, you know, meltdown of the financial and economic system is just might just be around the corner. So, Uh, we don't know how the global population and those affected will react to to such a calamity. And um, I believe um, the key really is whether those movements are, um, uh, you know, pursuing a planetary perspective. If they look at, you know, the problem from the perspective of the whole planet or whether they really believe in, you know, um, going back to the nation-state, um, and about the yellow vests, I'm not exactly sure what their what their view is in this regard, right? So um, the revolution from below is not necessarily a progressive revolution that will, um, you know, bring us forward. It might also simply be a re- reactionary, re- regressive movement that act, that um, in, at the end of the day actually worsens the situation if it supports nationalism. So um, the big challenge really is that this um, pressure from below um, uses approaches and a thinking um, that is cosmopolitan in nature, and that um, has a starting point that, um, you know, we need to actually empower um, the world's citizens, not just the citizens of some particular group. And um, I think we need to come to the realization that um, there are global social strata in development, and those who are at the bottom of the pyramid need to realize they have um, common interests, and and this common interest is actually to build global structures and legal means to curb,
0: um, you know, the transnational elite. I just had a, qu- a quick question, because um, we are slowly uh, running out of time, but about the Uh, economy. So within a world government, what would the, you know, you've talked about a global central bank, which I think we in some ways have. I I think in Switzerland, the the BII S kind of, if I'm not mistaken, has some of those functions. We have today the dollar world reserve currency. Um, So you talk about, uh, you know, we have uh, to have a global central bank, global currency. I know John Maynard Keynes, who was a proponent of world government. He had proposed the Bancor, today we have the IMF's special drawing right, which is already uh, operational. We've got the blockchain, digital currency, cryptocurrencies that are uh, possibilities. Uh, and something interesting, um, I think you mentioned that Russia and China have proposed world currencies. I know former President Medvedev in 2008 proposed, uh, or he was There's a picture with him holding a United Future World currency. And it's interesting that the two of them are rapidly accumulating gold. Um, and so what's do you have any idea what would happen like the dollar the world dollar reserve currency would just kind of collapse and then we would have you know the IMF special drawing right what what's your thought there Well I think
1: the point is really that we need to realize that interest rate policy um that is being done in the interest of national markets or national audiences um in a uh, reserve currency like the US dollar affects um the whole world and you know economic processes across the whole world so any national currency actually will not be able to serve that function um you know in, in that regard, I'm also doubtful whether special drawing rights that are based on a basket of national currencies are the way forward. Um, from my point of view, it's an intermediate, intermediate step only, a pragmatic step. But eventually we will have to have some genuine global currency, in my opinion, that is independent from um, interest decisions. Taken by um, you know bodies like the European Central Bank or the, or the Federal Reserve, um, it is of course hard to predict how these processes will point out, uh, will turn out. Um, the point that we try to make in the book is is not necessarily that we propose the one or the other solution. But that we believe if it comes to such global structures, which are under discussion for a long time, or have been under discussion for a long time by experts, you you mentioned it yourself, it's decades and decades, even 100 years ago already, there was a discussion about the global currency. And um, I'm really convinced eventually it will come. Um, But the whole issue with, with this discussion is that economists and others, they, you know, talk about this as if it was a technical question, but it's not. It's, of course, a question that has um, tremendous importance, especially if it comes to global taxation and global revenues. I mean, the point is, who who decides this? And uh, who provides oversight? Um, where is the democratic character of all of this? If we are looking at it from the, you know, perspective of today's international system. The the intergovernmental organizations and bodies that we have today, they are absolutely not able to do this. So what we are actually saying is, um, as global economic and financial integration moves forward, and it has to move forward, this process must be accompanied by a democratic component, namely a parliamentary body, that is accountable, you know, to, to world citizens. Um, it can't be done in, in back rooms by, by technical um, experts and diplomats. It should be a discussion um, that is driven and supported by a real democratic global audience. Um, that's, that's a point that we make. So we use it actually to support the idea that we need this, uh, a global parliament.
0: Just got a couple of questions left. Um, one thing that's, this this question is a little bit beyond me because it goes into the realm of philosophy, but uh, towards the end of the book, you talk about, you know, one of the solutions uh, towards world parliament, you've written that every new worldview in history has developed into a political project, as we saw with, uh, with the Renaissance. And uh, you write about the important aspect of the world state is the uh, the uh, philosophy, the post-postmodern modern Principles of planetary consciousness. Uh, Again, this is a little bit beyond me. Uh, So, my my question is: uh, With this planetary consciousness, you know, um, there's people that have a lot of different different worldviews today. Uh, You talk about post-conventional values being required for world citizenship, and so what would what would happen with people who have you know different traditions or cultural values, maybe closed worldviews, religious traditions, different loyalties? how would they fit into um a global structure that that perhaps requires this new identity would they just kind of feel um out kind of like outsiders what what would happen there
1: right um this is actually perhaps one of the most important dimensions in this effort because um certainly um we discussed that a uh, future World Federation to a large degree would have to be based on voluntary agreement of all entities that are part of it um, to, you know, um, abide by the rules that are being decided like you have it in um, some existing nation states. So if this cultural and psychological um, foundation does not exist, it will be very hard um, for such a structure to function. So, um, this relates to the need that there is a degree of um, global identity, a, a degree that is large enough to sustain uh, a world political structure. So, um, I'm not sure whether we are there yet. And interestingly, our political struggle for world parliament is, is the best indicator where we are at. For instance, if I talk to diplomats or parliamentarians, the dividing line often is not whether they are leftist or right or conservative or green, Um, but the dividing line is really their mindset. Have they embraced the idea that we are one planetary community um, and that humanity is sharing the same, you know, a common fate? Or are they still, in terms of their mindset, um, you know, stinging to the idea we have a nation state and the nation state is um, the only point of reference for anything that is being done. So while we promote politically the idea of the world parliament, we are at the same time challenging people's mindsets. So um, I believe over time, we already have seen that people um, tend to more and more identify themselves as world citizens across the world, across all cultures. Um, There is um, the World Value Survey project that is looking at such and other um, topics. How do people identify? How do they look at emancipatory values? And it seems like over the decades there is a strong um, movement that um, across the world people support this more and more. Um, look like yesterday or the day before yesterday, Taiwan legalized gay marriage. The Indian Supreme Court um, did the same. Um, and that's um, just a um, you know, it shows how emancipatory freedom values that give an individual the freedom to shape his or her life as they wish without harming others are, you know, taking root. And um, this is something that um, is important. If that does not happen to a certain level, um, a world parliament will not come about. Um, And um, certainly it's interrelated. For instance, in Europe, without European institutions, the European currency, the Schengen area, which allows for free movement of people, without all these things, um, you know, it would not be as easy as today to identify as European, obviously. You've got these European achievements and institutions and young people, growing up today in the European Union, they feel like they are EU citizens. So, I believe there is an interconnection between how institutions are being developed and how the consciousness and identity develops. So, um, if we talk about the UN Parliamentary Assembly, I believe it would be, you know, a step to help in the development of an understanding of global citizenship. Imagine the value, even if it's just a consultative body, or later, the value of having a body that you can elect as a world citizen wherever you are. You know, global elections, that is, in my view, something that would push, uh, the, you know, the un- an understanding as global citizens worldwide. So. Um, Right. We will have to do a little first steps. And now just one last dimension of what you asked. You will never be able to have a uniform understanding of um, identity anywhere. Um, Even in the United States, for instance, you will find fringe groups that um, do not identify with the federal government of the United States or who use, you know, um, some kind of group identity to exclude everybody else, you know, like white supremacists, um, and such groups will always be a problem, and I assume they will continue to exist um, in one way or another. But um, certainly, moving forward is not dependent on their approval. Um, but what we need is really a large majority of those people. Who do feel empathy and who do want the common good of all, um, and and that's something that certainly will be necessary. And and one last one last um, one last um, aspect. Certainly, it is possible to feel as a global citizen, as a citizen of your region, and a citizen of your nation, and a citizen of your I don't know other group at the same time, right? So. You can be a global citizen and uh, you know somebody else at the same time. This is quite clear. So I don't think um, that an exclusionary approach um, is necessary. And and so far, I'm I'm optimistic that this will actually move forward over time.
0: There's another question uh, that interests me: uh, the first two world. Uh organizations, League of Nations and the UN uh, were born out of great uh, global catastrophes, the first uh, world war, the second world war and you mentioned briefly in your book there's the danger that the third, the third generation world organization uh, there's a the danger that we might have another greater war and right now where you see the United States just behaving erratically um, in Iran and Venezuela and there's this fear that they might start some great conflagration. Uh, can you just comment on the, the, the fear of you know, the third-generation world organization, this world parliament, being born out of something like another great war.
1: Yes, it is true that these are really very, very troubling times. Um, I don't know, we might be in the worst situation since the Second World War, in my opinion, if it comes to the risk of some global calamity. Um, look at um, the suspension of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, for instance, or many other many other um, elements that are um, relevant now in this regard. But also other areas that we touched on, like um, climate, the climate crisis, uh, financial instability, and, and that. So um, the problem is that we cannot we cannot um, certainly um, accept the need of uh, a third calamity um, because the situation is that this might certainly be the last, um, you know, it might be a catastrophe of of a dimension that would lead to a complete or at least very substantial breakdown of human civilization. Um, Even a limited nuclear war Um, might have such consequences um, in the mid-run, if you um, consider its impact on um, the climate and uh, weather and agriculture and and so on. So, um, this is something we simply cannot accept. So, the big, big challenge, which has never been achieved before, is that we have to build a global consciousness and an understanding of global citizens Um, a planetary worldview without, without this third um, calamity, right? We need to anticipate the danger and um, the potential consequences now and act in anticipation to avoid it and to build world structures that um, will help to make it impossibility in the long run. I mean, humanity has still a long, long time Um, to live on this planet, if we do it right, if we accept planetary boundaries, and if we have the systems in place to manage planetary boundaries. Millions of years, actually. So um, this is something we really need to recognize. And um, on the other hand, it is quite sure that um, We will have to deal with uh, catastrophes, but they might be of a smaller scale, yes, like a global financial crisis, um, a second one. And I believe um, those who embrace the idea of planetary citizenship, they need to build networks now. They need to think about now um, what can we do and what can we achieve if that moment comes that shakes up um, the world. And then we need to be ready um, to seize the moment and achieve a civilizational leap forward, the, the leap that we need to avoid um, this this breakdown.
0: My final question before I give you the last word because it's just uh, interesting stuff uh, in this book so people can go out and check it out, buy it in, in Kindle, yeah, electronic version or the physical copy. Uh, the last thing that kind of I was surprised, you've written that hardly Any autocratic regime survives when the per capita income reaches 6,000 U.S. dollars. And surely we've seen in in China, the middle class just explode. Hundreds of millions of of people um, just uh, raised out of poverty. And you've written just this is kind of like out of left field for me that the chance that China might lead the way toward global government by them democratizing uh, itself. And you say that, in fact, plans are already being laid down to democratize. China, just a thought on that.
1: Right. I mean, you know, many people, they look at the West and the global North um, if they uh, wish to pursue innovation in terms of global governance reforms and um, democratic, uh, you know, um, steps forward. But uh, my experience is that the Western elite and politicians, they are really intellectually worn out. Um, you know, They enjoy privileges that have been built over decades, and um, they are not the ones who are actually thinking about innovation. And they are also, by the way, um, as a rule, there are exceptions, but as a rule, they are not interested in ideas like a global parliament. Um, Well, the Chinese are not interested in that either, the Communist Party, Um, let's be clear about that. Um, It's a a dictatorship um, that is right now confining 1.3 million Uyghurs in in camps. It's, uh, you know, a very, very terrible regime and um, a regime that we should resist as as best as we can. However, the point uh, that we try to make in the book is that Um, change is happening, and it might be happening. And perhaps China, a new China that has gone through a democratic revolution might be exactly the place where fresh thinking comes from in terms of the global order. Uh, Interestingly, Mikhail Gorbachev, for instance, um, he offered fresh thinking in terms of how to change the global order in 1987 to 1991. Um, and beyond, um, but then he no longer um, was in in his political position. So there is a tendency that revolutionary um, governments support revolutionary ideas, and um, we don't know what scenario will play out in China. Um, talking to Chinese dissidents and labor rights activists in Hong Kong and elsewhere, for instance, um, they tell me that um, the big oppression that is now taking place in China is actually a sign of weakness on part of the Communist Party. Um, What they are doing is, um, you know, establishing the social scoring system or the confinement that I mentioned in in the the Uyghurs in the north and and other things, total surveillance. Um, All these things are a sign of weakness and who knows? I mean, nobody anticipated that the Berlin Wall would fall and that the Soviet Union would dissolve. Nobody anticipated the Arab Spring in 2011. And in fact, there are little uprisings in China all the time, we just don't know about it. And, and at some point, uh, my hope really is that the Communist Party's power will, will, um, you know, be broken and will be replaced by a multi-party democratic system. And now imagine, a new democratic Chinese government that would push for global democracy. Who could resist that, right? Um, So we shouldn't look at the United States or or such countries um, for democratic change to happen. It might happen, uh, certainly, uh, you know, a new government uh, starting 2020 that replaces Trump, who knows what it's going to do to make good um, of what's going um, badly right now. But um, I think in our mindset, we should be open for surprises that we cannot foresee.
0: Correction, I believe it was Johan Galtung who, who I've interviewed, one of my, I guess, most popular interviews, who did predict the collapse of the Soviet uh, Union. A- any final thought or, or, or word uh, from you, anything you'd, you'd like to leave us with, uh, message?
1: Well, yes. I mean, what I could do is I can say that anyone who is listening or viewing to this um, podcast an interview is very welcome to become part of this effort of um, promoting planetary citizenship, planetary worldview, and, of course, planetary um, institutions like a democratic world parliament. So I believe um, this will only function anticipating you know, the catastrophe and avoiding it if uh, we are many and if we are at the right places at the right time. And you are very welcome uh, to be part of this.
0: And uh, I'll put the links uh, in the description, but can you just briefly mention you're you're on Twitter, you have uh, websites, uh, where can people best uh, follow the work and, and the different programs uh, that you participate in?
1: Right. I would recommend if you are at Twitter to follow the uh, Twitter account of Democracy Without Borders, which is the key organization that is pushing for several campaigns. Um, For instance, the campaign for UN Parliamentary Assembly, and the handle is democracywb.
0: Okay. And check out the book once again. Uh, Oh, yes. mm -hmm. And yeah, thanks again. People check out uh, the websites, uh, the Twitter, and it was great speaking with you, Andreas. Danke.
1: Thanks again for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.